Thank you all. Good morning, everybody. What a treat to be here when Reverend Patty is here and Gregory Page is here. This is quite an alignment. You know, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking on the church circuit and uh, don't tell the other places, but this is my favorite place. <laughs> and uh, I am truly joy-filled to be in this space with you again. And, and I know that uh, all our hearts and our, and our love surrounds John this morning as well. So, I'm thrilled to be able to open up an inquiry with you this morning and, and, and to think through some things with you. That's, I suppose, my role here today in today's service. So, I'll start here. Have you ever heard the phrase, burying the lead? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a journalism phrase, and it refers, of course, to when in an article or in a talk or something, the author or the speaker buries the main point way deep in the piece and, and, and wastes a lot of your time with a lot of verbiage up front. That's called burying the lead. And they spell it L-E-D-E -E in journalism. They made up a new word because they wanted to distinguish it from the other word, lead, from which the typeface is made used in printing presses. So already a lot of useless information you didn't need. I'm burying, <laughs> burying the lead. Uh, what's he here to talk about, you're wondering. Um, but I'm thinking about that burying the lead bit because like many of you, I'm caught by the similarities found between the world's religions and by the often striking parallels between their master teachers, take Jesus and Buddha, for example. And like many of you, I'm also often haunted by the distance between us and them and how much water has gone under the bridge and by how many are the distortions that stand between us and the original messages of these teachers. So here comes the lead. <laughs> I, I want to try something with you this morning. I want to look at the very first teachings both of them uttered. The first words out of their mouths. Jesus and Buddha, after their awakening experience, after their transformations from regular guy to uh, illumined masters. Because I'll tell you what, I don't think either Jesus or Buddha buried the lead. I think the first, and, and I'm going to take you there in a minute, I think the first things out of both of their mouths, the first teachings they dropped on us when they came out as teachers would become the central pillars of their life's work. And it's not mysterious. And so to me, that's helpful. As I look at the significance of Jesus or the significance of Buddha in their respective traditions and the whole civilizations that have come up around those teachings, it gets a little murky and complicated and, you know, millennia have passed. And so sometimes just to kind of help myself focus, I go back to these first words that they both spoke. So let's see if you agree that, that they did not bury the lead. Uh, the Gospels tell us, of course, that Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. Jesus is roughly 30 years old at this point. We don't know much about the first 30 years of his life, but the Gospels kind of start there at the baptism, essentially. 
And he comes up out of the water and gospels tell us that the spirit of the Lord descended in the form of a dove and said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus went to the wilderness to process this information and his transformation for, for 40 days and 40 nights, that classic biblical number that comes up again and again and again. That's a long time to not eat. But when he was in the desert, of course, uh, Mark and Matthew tell us that he was tempted by Satan, uh, who gave him three temptations. And of course, like all heroes in all heroes' journeys, he withstands the three tests and comes back. And when he returned from the wilderness to begin his teaching career, his very first words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or in some other translations, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe you've heard that one. I tend to use the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. All right. The word repent, uh, I, I, I didn't grow up religious. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, I found my, fascina my fascination with the world's wisdom traditions uh, when I was in college. And I kind of fell in love with all of them at, all, all of them at once, although probably Christianity last. Um, and the word repent is one of the reasons, because, you know, repent carries a lot of baggage. It sounds like I'm being shamed for, being, for doing some horrible thing, that if I don't stop being who I am and become what some institution is telling me to be, then I'm cut off from God. It's, it's, it's very, that's just my, I don't know, my my obstinacy, but the word repent just wasn't working for me uh, the way I understood it. But when you go back to the Greek, it's a kind of, I think, clumsy translation of the Greek word, the Koine Greek word, uh, metanoia. And I bet all y'all in New Thought know this already, but metanoia means have some new thought. <laughs> it means begin to think differently, or in plain English, change your mind. Metanoia transformed mind, new mind. And that to me doesn't sound very much at all like be ashamed of who you are and, and, and conform to this institutional teaching. Quite different, in fact. It sounds rather autonomous, radical, and self-regulated. And the kingdom of heaven, uh, we don't have time for that one. That's just a big, big, big concept, isn't it, in the Gospels? What the heck does that mean? And why... Do Jesus, as the Hebrew prophets before him, almost always talk about God in political terms, and more specifically, monarchy terms, as if God is the king and we are the king's subjects. Have you ever thought about that? I find that kind of odd, that the messaging of, of Judeo-Christian scripture is political, that we are the subjects of a sovereign master. You don't hear that language in the Upanishads or in the Bhagavad Gita. God is described quite apolitically. It's, it's the language. It's part of what Joseph Campbell called the mask that we need to peer behind. So I guess something about the kingdom of heaven might be suggesting that, you know, transformed consciousness or um, realized awakening is nearby. Or to put it another way, we don't have a proximity problem. We have a perception problem. The kingdom of heaven or illumination or nirvana is not something I have to figure out and go find. It is an ever-present reality 
that I'm simply blind to in my current way of thinking. So that's a pretty powerful way to start your teaching career. And notice this, that again, Jesus doesn't begin his teaching career with a commandment to obey him or even to follow him or a commandment to conform to a specific set of theological claims and constructs. Nor does he begin his message with shame and condemnation, which is how repent is often taught in a lot of Christian contexts. So, instead, Jesus begins his teaching career with the suggestion that we simply let go of our old ways of thinking, our prejudices, our conditioning, our stories about ourselves, our fearful anxieties, and all of the second-hand explanations under which I am laboring to let go of all that. What's the point of learning new information, no matter how true and insightful that information may be, if the very uh, cognitive routes by which we process that information are clogged with distorting structural errors? What if we do not have a proximity problem, but a perception problem? I'm haunted by that question. And it is perhaps not a new world we need, but new eyes and a new mind with which to see and understand the world. And again, that's what we work on so consciously and deliberately throughout the New Thought universe. So... Switching over to the Buddhist tradition now, let's look at what he did at the beginning of his teaching career. He was born about 500 years before Jesus in the 6th century BCE in India. And in his 20s, he was just Siddhartha Gautama before he became the Buddha. In his 20s, uh, he studied with all the, all the gurus or teachers in the forest and studied all that Vedic knowledge. And this is at the same time when the Upanishads are being written down. It's a heady time in India, and, and he walked every philosophical path he could find, including eventually landing in a kind of extreme practice of radical asceticism, self-mortification. None of it worked. So he came back to the middle path, and he sat in the, in the forest under the Bodhi tree, the tradition tells us, and he began to meditate, and he vowed not to arise until he had attained enlightenment. And then comes a demon to give to Siddhartha three temptations. It's the same story. 500 years earlier before the Gospels. It's what we call in, in, in my business an archetype. It's, it's a universal trope in so many hero's journey stories. When our hero is about to go from one level up to a higher level, there appears, Joseph Campbell says, the threshold guardian, whose job is twofold. To be so terrifying and fearsome that you will fail, because if you don't have the courage and the wisdom to withstand the threshold guardian, you sure as hell don't have the courage and the wisdom to exist at that higher level. The threshold guardian is doing you a favor, Campbell says. They're doing you a favor. In the end, in the final analysis, these guys are allies. It's a fascinating way to look at the struggles that you and I go through. 
In what way is my medical diagnosis a threshold guardian, an agony I must endure, so that what is inauthentic about me may burn away in the suffering? So there's a lot of big questions moving through these stories. But on the surface anyway, we have our hero facing a demon. His name in the Buddhist story is Mara. And he gave Siddhartha three temptations. And I won't take you through all of them, but trust me, they're quite similar. And, and uh, like our hero Jesus, our hero Siddhartha withstands the three temptations. And then Mara is defeated and Siddhartha awakens. And he becomes the Buddha, the awakened one. And... When the scales fell from his eyes, Buddha pierced the veil of conditioned consciousness and he began to embody the wisdom of the interconnectedness of all forms, all energy, all consciousness. And this awakening left him awash in a deep compassion for the suffering of all sentient beings. In Jesus' language, Buddha entered the kingdom of heaven. And his own self-importance receded. And when he arose from that meditation session, that was quite a doozy. <laughs> when he arose from that meditation session, he walked out of the wilderness, as Jesus walked out of the wilderness, and came across three old ascetic friends, and they stopped to rest in a deer park near Benares, India. And there Siddhartha began to teach. Let's call him the Buddha now. And those teachings come down to us as the Deer Park Sermon. And they are the first words of the Buddha, the first teachings of the Buddha. A little longer than repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But still a kind of encapsulated teaching that would form the basis of his entire teaching career. Unlike Jesus who after his transformation lived two and a half years and was executed, Siddhartha has a 45-year teaching career. And so that's one difference between the two. So what did Buddha teach at the Deer Park Sermon? Let's look at that first teaching. Basically, he taught the middle path, as it's widely known in, in, in and outside of Buddha, Buddhism. The idea that we should probably, in order to attain wisdom, we should avoid the twin extremes of absolute sensual overindulgence and, conversely, self-mortification and torture. You know, eat some food. <laughs> Take care of your body. Enjoy the pleasures of life in moderation. That's the middle path. It's pretty straight up. And then comes the next batch of teaching known to us as the Four Noble Truths. And he draws these, of course, from our own experience, from his own experience. And Buddha always asks us, never take anything on authority. Test all these truth claims against the, the, the lens of your own experience to see if they have merit yourself. So the first noble truth is life as it is normally lived is characterized by dissatisfaction and suffering. In Sanskrit, dukkha. I think a modern word might be anxiety. That no matter how comfortably you got it, you're going to be anxious all the time. Because it's always loss, loss, loss in the impermanence of the world. So that's the first truth. Life is characterized by suffering and dissatisfaction. The second noble truth is much more 
high stakes. Here he's going to make a claim about what the primary cause of that suffering is. He says, suffering and dissatisfaction are primarily caused by craving and attachment. Our suffering is not caused by the people around us or the conditions that we, in which we find ourselves. Our suffering, Buddha claims, and it's a startling claim because I'm used to thinking of my suffering as your fault. Or the world's fault, or the system, man, or the weather. And so it sounds a little unpalatable to hear a wisdom teacher say, you know where most of the suffering is coming from? Your bad thinking. So this is going to take a second to warm up to this one. But for, you know, in, in the interest of philosophy, let's just sort of accept it provisionally for the moment to move on. So life is characterized by suffering. Suffering is generally caused by uh, my own cravings and attachments. I just want things to be different than the way they are. It's that simple. I go out and turn the key on my car, push the button, the battery's dead. And I get upset and I get angry and all kinds of financial anxieties are triggered and I'm going to be late and... And I'm going to miss the thing I was supposed to be at. And people are going to think I'm stupid and can't keep a calendar. And my whole ego's on the line. And there's a lot of drama because a battery ran out of juice. Because apparently I live in the consciousness that car batteries are immortal. And if it failed, it's obviously a personal attack against my uh, professional integrity. So it's not about you, Peter. You know, that is the essential thrust of this. Batteries die. And all the agony I'm having about it, uh, I'm generating myself. <laughs> the third noble truth is, is, if the first two are true, the third has to be true. The third says, if you reduce your self-centeredness, your suffering will reduce. Suffering and dissatisfaction can be reduced by reducing their cause. So instead, I just start my, I try to start my car, the battery's dead, and I, instead of going into that whole drama spi spiral, I just say, oh, that happened. <laughs> what I thought was going to unfold is not going to unfold. Instead, this other stuff is going to unfold that I wasn't expecting, but now I'll just do that. And that's called, in a word in Buddhism, nirvana. Nirvana isn't some exotic spiritual you know, thing. It's just the absence of agitation. And more specifically, the absence of craving and fear. Craving, wanting things, and fear, pushing things away. And in Nirvana, both of those energies sort of recede. And instead of being afraid or, uh, or uh, drunk on longings, I just come into this now moment and I say, oh, this is happening. The great 20th century teacher Krishnamurti calls it choiceless awareness. To come into this next moment without assigning value to everybody and everything. Without having an opinion about whether the light is red or green. And just saying, oh, it's red. Or, oh, it's green. 
choiceless awareness. This is, of course, again, back to the Gospels. This is Jesus saying, don't judge. So those are the first three noble truths. There is suffering. Suffering has a cause, and it's your mistaken thinking. And if you change your thinking, you could get rid of your suffering. So what's the fourth noble truth? So the first three are the diagnosis and the prognosis. The fourth is the uh, prescription. Here your doctor pulls out her prescription pad and she writes eight things she wants you to do. Eight new ways of thinking, talking, acting, meditating, working. It's called the Eightfold Path. Buddhism's full of lists. Number four on the Four Noble Truth is a list of eight things. It's the action plan. Because we know around here too, you can't just think spiritual thoughts. You have to start walking differently through the world. You have to start showing up differently in the world. Spiritual life is not just spending an hour in a room like this every week. It's using this spiritual nutrition to then go walk through your life in a, in a more awakened way. Um, so I guess in simpler words, Buddha is teaching us metanoia. He's teaching us a new way of thinking about how to be in the world. And as uh, we well know around here, our thoughts shape our lives. In fact, when Buddha's words were first written down a couple of centuries after he lived, it's even worse than in the Christian tradition, right? The Gospels were written 40, 50, and 60 years after Jesus died, probably by people who didn't even know him when he was alive. So it's quite remarkably secondhand, maybe from written records. We just don't know. And it's even worse in Buddhism. The first writings of the Buddha's words were a couple hundred years after the Buddha. So, But the, it's called the Dhammapada, and it's a collection of the sayings of the Buddha. And the very first one, verse 1, will sound very familiar in this crowd, and it is, our life is a product of our thoughts. In fact, you heard the Emily Hopkins or Emily Cady uh, at the, at the beginning. Our life is a product of our thoughts. Our thoughts of yesterday built our life of today, and our thoughts of today build our life of tomorrow. Our life is a product of our thoughts. That's verse one of the Buddhist text, the Dhammapada. So there's a few things to notice here. Neither Jesus or Buddha begins with a commandment to accept a certain set of beliefs or follow even a specific religion. It's authentic transformation thereafter, not our conformity to a doctrine. And I'm, this is me editorializing. I guess the whole thing is me editorializing. But this is me really editorializing now, so take it or leave it. <laughs> I'm increasingly convinced that Christianity and Buddhism and all religions are best seen not as endpoints, but as doorways. Not as destinations, but as paths. Not as set teachings to be adhered to, but as directional pointers for how we might live better. So for me, being a Christian or a Buddhist is a, is a path, not a place. I always get nervous when people ask me what my religion is. That's almost as bad as, do you believe in God? I'm like, how much time do you have? Because you're going to get a different answer every hour from me.
So the way of Jesus, the way of Buddha, is a journey, not a destination. Every step is an arrival. And there's no end in sight. And that's how I think about religion and spirituality. In fact, maybe even to put a finer point on it, to me the words Christian or Buddhist are verbs, not nouns. And there is no map. Now there are hints and there is grace and there are travelers' tales aplenty and there is inner light and we sometimes even hear the whispers of spirit welling up from the depths of our own souls. For if the kingdom of heaven is near, then not one of my steps leads away from it. And we begin to understand maybe what Paul meant when he wrote that God is where we live and move and breathe and have our being. To me, that's the most Vedanta passage in the New Testament. It's in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul is in uh, Athens talking to Greeks and Paul later mused that he loved going to Athens because when on his speaking tour because he got the biggest crowds in Athens but the fewest converts <laughs> and he was actually quoting a Greek poem there that's a good teacher right he quoted their own poetry back to them and he was trying to explain God in his understanding he said God is not this disembodied you know king that you have to be the sovereign subject of God is where we live. It's where we live and move and have our being. That's like Brahman in Advaita Vedanta. It's a very kind of new thought way of thinking of God. So in this light, letting go of all our old ways of thinking and, and, and becoming vulnerably authentic and humbly surrendering to what's next it's, it's, it's the only sane stance left. So I want to close today with a poem from the Muslim tradition, uh, Islam, the religion of Islam, and particularly the Sufi mystical branch of Islam. And the a poet many of you already know, of course. No, not Rumi, the other guy, Hafiz. Hafiz, in the Daniel Ladinsky translation, his book, The Gift, is a must-have on every bookshelf. So Hafiz wrote a poem, I think beautifully encapsulates that sort of mystical perspective. It's called, I Have Learned So Much. I have learned so much from God that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. Namaste. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Vision was founded in 2007 to transform lives through practical spirituality. Please donate. We appreciate the gifts that you give. You can go to visioncsl.org and click on give or text donate 
to 619-505-3359. Thank you.